this evening. Uh, uh, John Suits and I have been talking through the Old Testament readings and just how you read Genesis, Proverbs, and Isaiah, how they all speak so much together, intertwine. And out of this, I said, John, why don't you go ahead and preach on Wednesday night? That takes one thing off my plate. Uh, but you have a lot of things uh, coming forth from your heart that I would like for you to share. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, I told Father that I would keep it brief, uh, right under an hour. <laughs> I, don't, I think if I do that, I'll be murdered like Abel. So... Um, I used to do this, actually, uh, for a living, not in an Orthodox church, but I was a, a Protestant pastor for a number of years, and uh, I promise you, it's not like riding a bicycle. You do forget uh, some of your old tricks, and, uh, but I want to talk to you tonight about the story of Cain and Abel, and what the story of Cain and Abel presents to us in our Lenten journey. Um, in Scripture, one of the things that's very common in the Old Testament that the church fathers are always picking up on are typologies. So we read a narrative, it tells us a story, but within that story there's a deeper truth. And often that truth is pointing us to the mysteries of the faith, to Christ himself. And in the story of Cain and Abel we see a, a, a very important typology that will come up again and again and again in not only Genesis, but throughout all of the Old Testament. And that's the theme of fraternal strife. We see Cain and Abel. Here soon we're going to see a lot of brothers. We're going to see Jacob Esau. We're actually going to see Isaac and Ishmael. We're going to see Joseph and his brothers. And in each one of these stories, we see uh, truth that God would show us. And so I'd like to reflect on the story of Cain and Abel with you all and see what it tells us about another theme in the scriptures, uh, especially in the prophets, which is that of true worship of God. So we heard tonight kind of the end of the story of Cain, but the Monday text and the Tuesday text, we see that right out of the fall, right out of the exile from paradise, that Eve bears two sons, Cain and Abel. And we're told that Cain does what? What is Cain's occupation? He's a farmer. What is Abel? He's a shepherd. These are not rhetorical questions. I, I feel your pain now, Father. This is, yeah, speak up, speak up. And without much warning, we're told that actually the way uh, the text says it, in due time, and we don't know what that means exactly, each of the brothers brings an offering to the Lord. Cain brings the fruits of the soil, and Abel brings the firstborn of the sheep. And the text simply tells us that the Lord looked favorably upon Abel's offering, but he did not regard Cain's. So right out of the exile from paradise, we see an attempt at reconciliation with God through sacrifice. The theme of sacrifice is crucial to the entire Old Testament, to the New Testament, to our worship. Uh, 
sacrifice is inherent to what it means to be a human. And we see this, that the very first act outside of paradise that man offers to God is a sacrifice. And we see a typology emerge, one that will be pressed and pressed and pressed in the prophets. And actually, if you read the very first chapter of Isaiah in our first week of Lent, it's the theme of two types of worship. Um, and, there's, and there's only going to be two types. There's a type that pleases God, and there's a type that displeases God. There's a sacrifice that is good and fragrant unto the Lord, and there is one that he does not regard. So the text doesn't really tell us why, and this always bothered me as a kid. I always felt like, why, why did Cain, he brought stuff to God. What, what's the deal? Like, he was a farmer. What else would a farmer bring? Um, and I actually don't think, in, in reading uh, the fathers, they, it's, not what, it's not what they brought that's at the heart of the matter, but it's their heart. And if we look very, very closely at the text, it gives us a very, very small hint at what is at play. And if you looked at Genesis 4-4, it's a very subtle, subtle note. It said that God looked favorably upon Abel's gift, but he did not regard Cain's sacrifice. And in the Greek, those are two different words, and it's the same word that we use in the liturgy, the gifts now offered, the doron, the tadoron. So I'll ask you a question. What kind of person, who, who do you give gifts to? People you like. Who else? People you love, people you respect, people you adore. And so in this one tiny word, Abel's heart is revealed. We know what he has brought to God and what God has seen in him, which is a gift. He brings this gift of love and faithfulness to God, and that is why God accepted. And so we can pause and reflect that right out of the gate, right outside of the literal gates of paradise, we see that there is a worship that God will accept. We see in Abel that there is something in humanity that You won't find in orthodoxy a belief in total depravity. There is something in us that can, in fact, please God. And that's very important, that there is something in the heart of man that can please God. Paul picks up on this theme of Abel's faithfulness in in the epistle of Hebrews, and you've probably heard this before. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Which is uh, very clever of Paul to say that he speaks, because how many words does Abel actually say in the text? Zero. Yet his faith says everything. Notice that it's not merely the content or the method of Cain's sacrifice, um, It's not that he's followed a certain rubric. There are no rubrics. There's nothing for him to follow. He has parents, and before them, nothing. But out of love for God, he offers this sacrifice. And it is his faithfulness toward God. It is that faith 
which God commends to him as his righteousness. And what is this faith of Abel? I, I thought about this because when you read the prophets and you read the Psalms and you read many of the Old Testament texts, they recite this history of salvation. And it often has to do with God who parted the seas, who destroyed Pharaoh's army, and, he, and, and this history of salvation. But Abel has none of this. So what is the content of his faith? And uh, St. Cyprian, in commenting on uh, Abel's faith, said that it's the fear of God, a simple heart, the law of justice, and peace of concord. So to kind of rephrase that, Abel fears God as his creator. He has parents who can remember that. He loves him with a pure and simple heart. We're, we're dealing with the fourth human ever made. He has a simple heart, and he desires to please God in peace, shalom, wholeness. He, res, he is desiring what his parents lost, which was paradise. And God commends him for his faith. But we have a contrast. We see Cain. Uh, I love the way St. John Chrysostom says that uh, he, he says that Cain just brought something to God. He just, and in fact, he says he picked something off the ground and gave it to him. So he gave him something, but not everything. He offers something from the field, not his best, not the first fruit. He brings to God a sacrifice from the cursed soil. And it's implicit that he expects something in return, right? Because what happens when God doesn't look favorably on his... Sacrifice. What does the text tell us? It says that Cain's countenance fell and he became angry. And that's very important. He became angry. If we see the purest of our religion in, in, in Abel, we see the worst of human religion in Cain. We see the most base form of pagan religion, which is I offer to God something, whatever deity I may think he is, to satisfy whatever need he has, and I need something in return. Whether that's power, fertility, a good, a good crop, whatever it is, there's no altruism involved. It's merely transactional. So Cain does not come in faith and love. He comes expecting something. He wants to have something over on God. Listen, I brought you something. What do I get? And God doesn't regard his sacrifice. Literally, it says God did not even look at it. Why? Because he did not do what his brother did. He did not offer it in faith and love. And I love what God asks Cain. He says, why are you angry? Why are you so despondent? If you do well, will you not be accepted? God speaks to Cain as a tender father. And in his response to Cain, he reveals exactly what God is after in our worship. Notice carefully, God did not say, if you do well, your sacrifice will be accepted. He said, if you do well, you will be accepted. At the heart of worship and God's desire from us is communion. Not that what we bring is merely accepted, but that we are accepted, that we find ourselves right again with God, back home in paradise. 
Sacrifice in its essence is not merely an external activity. It is that external activity which reflects what is in our heart. God continues with Cain and says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? But if you do not well, if you don't do well, sin is crouching at the door. What does that evoke? What kind of imagery is something crouching and hiding at your door? Good or bad? What kind of things typically want to crouch at the door? Wolves. It's the big bad wolf. The snake. It's funny because actually if you look in the text, the same word for crouch uh, that's in there in the original Hebrew uh, is the name, if you take that and were to make it a noun, it's the name of, uh, of an Assyrian god, a demon, that literally crouched and preyed upon highway travelers. So the text is being very clever and it's saying, something's after you, Cain. Its desire is over you, but you should rule over it. And what is... What is this sin that seeks to consume Cain? It is a hatred and anger toward God and toward his own brother. It is an antitype of the two greatest commandments, which are love God and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the same sin which seeks to devour us, which the church constantly calls us to pay attention to, especially during Lent. And we know the end of the story. The culmination of Cain's false worship is what? His idolatry, his self-love, his hatred toward God and his brother. What does it culminate in? Fratricide. Rather than offering himself to God, Cain offers his brother, not to God, but as a propitiation for his own wrath, his own anger, his own need to have power and control over the divine. And what's his curse for this? This is, if you read very carefully in the text, there's so much that's revealed. When Eve and Adam are kicked out of paradise, it says they were removed from Eden. But when Cain is cursed, it says he's taken away from the presence of God. His curse is worse than his parents. Because nothing breaks communion with God more than hatred of our brother and sister. And the church puts this right at the beginning. Why? Why? Why Genesis? Why this story? It's to reflect on what true and false worship are. We're Orthodox Christians. Orthodoxia. Right what? Right worship. Right worship is that which brings us into communion with God and each other through the love of Christ, which his love was at its core fraternal. I lay down my life, he says. It's worship which is offered on behalf of all and for all, out of love. But there is false worship. We can commit, even in this holy place, false worship, if we have hatred of our brother. And no matter how well we perform the ritual act, if there is hate in our heart, We are not offering God true worship. This theme is very present in our Lord's Sermon on the Mount. What does he say there? If you have anger toward your brother, you've committed what? Murder. And what does he say about worship in this very same text? 
this very same section. He says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember what? That your brother has fought with you. Leave worship. Leave the altar. And go and be reconciled. And then come offer. So it's during Lent that the church is getting us to focus on what it means to be in communion with God. To, to see our brokenness. To see this ancient uh, you know, the prayer that's offered over the catechumens. I, I, it stuck with me thinking about what I prepared. This ancient delusion. What is that ancient delusion other than the hatred that is in our hearts? The anger that is toward one another. And the church calls us to repent of this. And it gives us such a good tool. The church, uh, I'm five years into being Orthodox, and one of the things I come to appreciate is, yes, all the beautiful mystical language, but actually how practical, and that the church never leaves us without tools. And we uttered one of the best tools this evening, the prayer of St. Ephraim. This Prayer is a tool that refocuses our heart on right worship by means of forgiving our brothers and not seeing their sin. And I'd offer to you that this week as you're praying that prayer to keep Cain and Abel in mind. O Lord and Master of my life, take from me the spirit of sloth, despair, lust of power, and idle talk. That's Cain. That lust of power. Idle talk to God. Sloth, lazy sacrifice. But rather give the spirit of chastity, humility, patience, and love to thy servant. The spirit of Abel. Spirit of love and of humility, of patience and love toward God. Yea, O Lord and King, grant that I may see my own sins and not to judge my brother. For blessed art thou now and always and unto ages of ages. Amen. So, I commend to you all that this week... And through our lives, and especially during this Lenten season, that we would not be like Cain. That we would not come to God with insincere worship, with fraternal hatred, but we would be like Abel, who in the fear of God with faith and love drew near to Christ. Who laid his own life down for his brethren as an eternal gift to God. Who, as Paul says in Hebrews, whose blood speaks a better word than that of Abel. Amen.